take a moment and greet. Well, a great big thank you to everyone who helped out in this year's Vacation Bible School. Uh, 172 children and over 100 volunteers uh, were a part of that this year. And so uh, it was a success uh, in every way. And so a great big thank you and praise the Lord for that. Um, Also, the, the Ladies Fall Bible Study... It will be starting the Tuesday morning Bible study will begin September 13th at 9.30 a.m. And to register and purchase books, you can sign up at the woman's ministry table. And, uh, and also, many of you know John Frano. He's a greeter and an usher here at the church. And he had a minor, uh, I don't know, a brawl with an ATV today and uh, broke a couple of ribs. So he, he's okay, but if you just keep him in your prayer and... Uh, just that, that God would be with them and, and, and heal them and touch them in this time. Um, but with that, you can open in your Bibles tonight to the book of Galatians, chapter 1. And if anyone needs a Bible, just uh, raise your hand or you know, make it known that you need one. And Galatians, chapter 1. Now, in our study last week, we looked at verses 6 through 9. They're that small section after Paul's introduction wherein he basically gives to us his indictment against the Galatian church and really tells us the reason why he is writing. And his purpose, his agenda, if you would, is threefold. To first of all, declare to them that there is only one gospel. That its content is clear and uncompromising. There is only one way to get to heaven, one gospel, and that it isn't a gray gospel, but it is specific and it's important. So to tell them that. Also, number two, that a perverted or a twisted gospel is therefore false. That if you take that gospel and in any way alter it, you know, wherein you take something out or add something to it, you are corrupting its message, its potency, and therefore it becomes false. It's a false gospel. And then finally, he tells them that a false gospel cannot save, and that that is the problem. And the Galatian church was in danger of giving themselves over to a false gospel, to embracing a twisted or perverted form of what Jesus Christ accomplished upon the cross in purchasing their salvation. And Paul is writing to correct the error that had been infused into the church. 
Now, in the remainder of chapters 1 and 2, Paul is going to share with this church where his message came from, or really the source of the gospel that he declared unto them. Now, in many ways, the church today, you know, the church that we understand, identifies itself using certain leaders. We do it denominationally. You know, we speak of, you know, John Calvin or the Wesleys or Martin Luther or D.L. Moody or Chuck Smith or Mark Driscoll. And, and what we do is we, we throw out the name of a leader, somebody that's been influential in the church of Jesus Christ. And using that, we kind of identify ourselves. We kind of send the message of where we're coming from based on the reputation and what that particular leader accomplished in church history. We also identify ourselves doctrinally using leaders in the church. Oftentimes we'll say, well, Charles Spurgeon taught, and then, you know, we'll, we'll go forward with our statement or our declaration of what the point we're trying to make. Or A.W. Tozer was a proponent of, you know, and you fill in the blank after it, or J. Vernon McGee and all this. And what you're essentially doing by calling upon the name of those leaders is that you're bringing credibility to the statement that you're making. You're basically declaring that this message that I'm bringing to you or this thought or this point comes from or has its root in, you know, such and such interpretation or whatever. And and you're then stamping approval on it by saying Spurgeon said, you know, and and, oh, okay, everybody says, all right, well, Spurgeon said it. So it's all good, you know. Now, just as that is the way we operate in the church today, the same thing was true in Paul's day. The Jews in Paul's day had influential rabbis and teachers that they used as a platform for, first of all, identity, and also doctrinal credibility. They would say, well, Rabbi Hillel teaches this. And Rabbi Shema teaches this. And people would say, oh, okay, well, we, we understand. We know who those people are. And they have credibility. We trust what they teach. And, and so we can kind of latch on to your message and, you know, give credence to what you're saying because we know the source of where it comes from. And so resultantly, in antiquity, in Paul's day, in Jewish customs and in Jewish, you know, teachings, Many times, messages, ideas, concepts, traditions, and all the rest would pass from generation to generation, you know, through the teachers that subscribed to particular schools of thought. We, in our day, we squabble about gray scriptural concepts, tongues. You know, and and, and one side of the church says, well, that's gone. That doesn't matter anymore. And the other side says, no, it's just as much for today. And everybody quotes their leaders and cites their position. And, you know, everybody kind of digs their heel in on their side. And we have our things that we squabble about. Baptism, immersion or sprinkling, you know. And, And there's all of these various things. In Paul's day, the Jews squabbled about other things. Dietary customs, Levitical practices, behavior on the Sabbath day. They had their things that they, they, the positions that they held, and then they would kind of use the teaching that was handed down from generation to generation to verify or give credence to the things that they were declaring. 
It would be common for a teacher in Paul's day when challenged about a a particular statement to just say, well, Rabbi Hillel teaches this, you know, and and that would often end the argument. Now, as we pick up here in in verse 10 of Galatians chapter 1, Paul is going to address the question that would naturally be on the forefront of the mind of his audience. And that is, Paul, where did you learn or from whom did you receive this message? This gospel of grace that you're declaring and you're defending, where did this message come from? Where is the source? And really, the section of scripture from verse 10 all the way to the end of chapter 2, as Paul gives his defense of where he received this message, it breaks down into four basic divisions. First of all, he tells us how it came about, or or, or really, where is the very source of the message? And then he tells us how it came forward, or how it came to be ratified or embraced by the church at large. And then he tells us how his message brings division. And certainly we know, as we've followed Paul through the book of Acts, and as we're understanding what's taking place here, that this message certainly brings division. And then finally, he closes off at the end of chapter 2 with why it matters, or why is it important? What's the big deal? Now, we're not going to get through all of that tonight. We will hopefully finish chapter 1 tonight, and we will simply look at where is the source, or where did Paul's message come from? How did it come about? And again, he's answering the question that they would naturally be thinking in their mind. Where did you get this doctrine, and who gives you the authority to teach it? And especially being in that it casts shadows upon what the Judaizers or the Jewish believers were teaching in the churches there in that region. Now in verse 10, as he kind of jumps into this, he asks two rhetorical questions. He says, for do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I yet please men, I should not be the servant of Christ. The first question that he asks them rhetorically, sarcastically, is who is it that I am trying to persuade by writing to you or by presenting this argument? Men? Or am I trying to persuade God? And it's a sarcastic question. He's appealing, really, to their common sense. He's basically essentially saying to them that the doctrines of God, or the ways of God, originate with God. He's the one that makes the way. He's the one that writes the truth, that authored the scripture, that ordained the way wherein man is saved. It isn't as though man writes legislation for heaven and then tries to convince God that it's a good idea. Well, God, this is the way you should do things, because we see it right here in your Bible. And then God looks down and he says, well, Paul, you know, you got a really good point with that grace thing there. And essentially, that's what Paul's doing. He's saying, look, this is either of God or it's not. Am I trying to persuade God by writing this stuff down and by teaching these things? Or am I seeking to persuade men? And the obvious answer, of course, is that, listen, this, this message that I have isn't something that was drummed up on earth and ratified in heaven, but rather it's something that originated in heaven and is ratified on earth. Am I seeking to persuade God or men? And then the second question that he asks is, do I seek to please men? 
And he appeals to them to consider in their minds, am I trying to impress some denominational board somewhere? Am I being considered for a position or for a a, a better place within some establishment or some organization? And and, and I have to prove that I'm adhering to what they're teaching so that they will put me in that position? Is that my thing, Paul's asking? Am I seeking to please men? Because listen, if I was, I wouldn't care what you believed. Because I wouldn't be concerned about your standing before God. I'm more concerned about how I'm looking and appearing before men. And Paul is saying, look, the very fact that I'm writing this to you is evidence that I'm concerned for you. I'm not trying to please men. He says, if I sought to please men, then I couldn't be or I shouldn't be, he says, the servant of Christ. You cannot be both a man pleaser, someone who's seeking to win the approval of man and one who also seeks to win the approval of God. Now, it's nice when both of those things work out. But Paul knew, and so do you probably, that most of the time, you cannot do both. You cannot please both God and men. And the Apostle Paul was not one who would call himself a man-pleaser, seeking to speak comforting words in the heart of someone who needs to be afflicted. So Paul asks them these two questions, and then he goes on to say then, concerning the source of this message in verse 11, But I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached of me or by me is not after man. The word certify there in the King James, you might have in your translation the word guarantee. I guarantee you, Paul. Now, if if Paul was a used car salesman, you know, or a student of law, a lawyer or something, and he said, I guarantee, automatic, you'd be like, all right. Your skeptical nerve would be, you know, pulled as you listen to it. Okay, here we go. But no, this is the Apostle Paul. And Paul says, I guarantee. And that's a strong word for someone like the Apostle Paul to use. I guarantee you, brethren, that the message or the gospel which I preached was not something that originated with man. And he's already setting that up that he is not about to call upon one of the teachers of Jewish, you know, theology or even Christian apostle. You know, he's not going to call on the name of any man in the ratifying of his message, but he is going right to the very source of it. He says, I guarantee you that the source of this message does not come from any man. For I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. This didn't come from Charles Haddon Spurgeon or A.W. Tozer or the Wesleys. This didn't even come from Peter, who was, you know, that rock, that apostle that was given the keys. It's not even from Peter, but rather this revelation, this gospel came directly from Jesus Christ himself. Now imagine what that would sound like to someone who's so used to hearing people just talk about men. As the Judaizers would come in and they would talk about Moses to a Gentile person. Talk about, you know, the rabbis of antiquity and the messages that were brought by them and just constantly calling upon the authority of man. Now Paul comes in and he says, I've got one better. I guarantee you that this didn't come from any man. They were expecting, almost waiting for him to quote some man, and he says, no, this came from Jesus Christ himself. 
And then he begins to testify or basically share with them his testimony of how Jesus revealed this gospel of grace to him. How, Paul? You're saying to us that this message, this gospel came from Christ. How? How did Jesus himself communicate with you this message? And so Paul now begins to share with them his testimony, and he starts at the point of his conversion. He starts at the very point when he encountered Jesus Christ in a living, personal way the very first time. And he begins by telling us what he was prior to coming to Christ. Look with me at verse 13. He says, For you have heard of my conversation, that means lifestyle, my lifestyle, in time past in the Jews' religion, how that beyond measure I persecuted the church of God and wasted it, and profited in the Jews' religion above many my equals in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous of the traditions of my fathers. He tells us there, first of all, what he was prior to coming to Christ. Paul in Philippians shares with them that he was a Pharisee, that he was a part of the religious establishment there in Israel, that, that that was who he was. And that as a Pharisee and as a zealous Jew, he tells us that he was one that beyond measure persecuted the church of God and wasted it. When we first meet the apostle, well, he wasn't the apostle Paul. He was just simply Saul, you know, brother Saul or the Saul, the Pharisee there in the book of Acts. And the first time we ever see Saul there in the book of Acts, he's there presiding over and consenting to the death of Stephen, who was the first martyr in the church of Jesus Christ. As they stoned Stephen, dragging him out of the city, it says that the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And it tells us that Saul was consenting unto his death. He was presiding over the martyrdom of Christians. A few verses later in Acts chapter 8 verse 3, it tells us that Saul wreaked havoc upon the churches hailing men and women and dragging them to prison, that that was his occupation. What his role was in the Pharisaic structure of Judaism in the day was to wipe out this sect of Christians. That was his purpose. That was his call. And then in Acts chapter 9, verse 1, just before he met Jesus Christ personally, it tells us Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord. That his heart was so filled with hatred, so filled with vileness towards Jesus and towards his people, towards the church. His job was to murder them, to persecute them, to put them in prison. And yet Paul here says, you have heard what my lifestyle was like in times past. You know the hostility and the bitter hatred and the ambition and zeal that filled my heart against the disciples of the Lord in times past. And then he goes on even to say that he profited in the Jews' religion above many of his equals. And that's an interesting thing. Because what Paul is basically saying is, listen, I was a zealous religious man. But by telling them that he profited in it, he is revealing that much of what he did was motivated by his own self gain, what he would profit from it. I profited much in the Jews' religion. 
He was one who was a huge opponent to the church of Jesus Christ. It's interesting to me that many of the best servants of the Lord at one point in their life are opponents of the Lord. I don't know if you found that to be true. I know that there's many of you here tonight that you're praying for, for someone. Maybe it's a son or a daughter or a, a family member, an extended family member or a coworker. And it just seems that they're so hostile towards the message and hostile towards Christians and they're hostile towards the name of Christ. Listen, be encouraged because many times it's those that take that stance that when they do get saved, when Jesus does reveal himself to them, they're the ones that are the most effective for him later. Somebody said one time that when you throw a rock into a pack of dogs, the one that barks is the one that got hit. And many times you're sharing Christ and, and you know, everybody's just taking it in stride, but then there's someone who barks. What are you saying? Why are you judging me? You know, listen, that's the one. That's the one who's under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. That's the one whom God is trying to reach, who God is wrestling with in the night when their head is on their pillow and they don't understand why they're even alive. So take hope, take courage. Saul was the greatest opponent of the church. And yet God had a plan for his life and God was able to reach a man whose heart was so incredibly hardened. Well, Paul goes on in verse 14 and he tells us that he profited in the Jews' religion above many of his equals, being more exceedingly zealous of the traditions of my fathers. In Philippians chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, the Apostle Paul elaborates on this. He, he, he tells us in, in Philippians exactly what he means when he says that he was zealous. He says that he was circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. That that Paul followed all of the codes and customs of Judaism to a T, to the best of his ability. He, He was careful to observe law and custom zealous to preserve the the establishment of what it was and what it represented, devoted to their principles and their cause, and that he profited much in what he was doing as a, a religious, zealous Jew. He was a very religious man. And he tells them, you understand that. You've heard about my lifestyle in times past, that that's what I was. But then he goes on, In verse 15, in the beginning of verse 16, and he tells us what he wasn't. What he was was a very religious man, but what he wasn't. Well, look with me at verse 15. He says, but when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the Gentiles, and you can pause with me right there, Paul openly and freely admits to them that while he was an exceedingly zealous and religious man, he was not a saved man. That all of his effort, all of his striving, all of his duties, all of his zeal, everything that he was giving to the establishment of Judaism was not able to save him. Jesus Christ was not yet revealed to Paul in that time. Many people believe that it's the religious zeal that they show outwardly that is going to be measured and weighed before God when they stand before him on the day of judgment. 
the devotion that they had towards their church or towards the establishment of their religion, you know. The works that they produced, the, the offerings that they gave, the sacrifice that they laid down. Their devotion to the laws and customs of their particular, you know, church or, or religion or denomination. That those things are going to stand for me on the day that I stand before God. He's going to see how much more exceedingly zealous I was that I profited above many of my equals in all of it. The problem is nowhere in the Bible anywhere does it say that anything you can do can save you. Your works can't save you. Your devotion can't save you. Your zeal can't save you. None of what you do for a church or for a religion can save you. None of what you can boast in, in your own holiness or spirituality, can save you in the least or even raise your standing before God even one iota. None of it. The Bible says, Titus chapter 3, verse 5, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but by his grace he has saved us. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, you know that famous verse, Paul says, for it is by grace that you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God and not by works, lest any man should boast. In Romans, he speaks of how the glory for your salvation cannot be upon you because you would be able to boast in those things. And Paul says boasting is excluded because of the law of grace, that is, that Jesus Christ paid the price for sin and that is the only way that anyone can stand righteous before a holy God is by faith embracing Jesus Christ and letting his blood be appropriated to your account and therefore you are righteous in your standing before God not by what you have done but by what he has done and Paul declares that in all of his religious duty in the perfection that he held to concerning the law and his zeal and his you know, custom and all that he did, that none of that was able to save him because Jesus had not yet been revealed. He was religious, but he wasn't saved. And I doubt that anybody in this room or even in this country is as religious as Paul was, as zealous to preserve the customs and traditions of their religion as Paul. And he says, my religion couldn't save me. And there's nobody today that stands, whether it be here or anywhere else in the world, that the devotion that they have or the level of effort that they give can save them. Only Jesus can save. That's it. Nothing that Paul did was able to save him or bring him into a place of peace with God. And that's why Paul goes on to say to the Philippians, right after he talks about all of his qualifications that he had, you know, being a Jew and righteous and all the rest, he goes on and he says in verse 7 there, Philippians 3, he says, but what things were gained to me? All of those qualifications, my resume, circumcised the eighth day, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, persecuting the church, the righteousness of the law, all of that, he says, whatever things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge. That means to know. The excellency of knowing Jesus Christ. He's not talking about the knowledge of being textbook. Oh, now I know. See, before I didn't know about Jesus. Now I know about Jesus. And so, no, 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 that's not what he's saying. He's saying I count all of my religious fervor as loss that I might know him. 
Because in all of my religion, all of my duties, all of my devotion, everything that I did, I could never know God. I I could seek to appease him. I could seek to try to calm him down a little bit by the things that I do in my life. and, And maybe he'll spare me a little bit. But he says, all of that, that's the best I could ever get. What I have now, he says, I know him. I know God, the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dung that I may win Christ. All of the things that inspired Paul to murder people before they were so important, he says, now it's rubbish, it's garbage, it's waste compared to the excellency of just knowing him. And Paul testifies to the Galatians. He says, listen, what I was was a zealous religious man. What I wasn't was saved. But then he says, concerning this conversion, this salvation that he received, he says, but when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace to reveal his son in me. And then he goes on to talk about the ministry that he received. He says these things about his conversion. He says, first of all, that it was in God's time. Completely lost. Basically, he he says that that he, oh yes, here it is. It happened at God's appointed time. That it wasn't until the time that God revealed Jesus Christ to Paul that Paul came to a saving knowledge of Jesus. And that should be encouraging for some of you that are praying for someone or waiting for that person to get saved or, or frustrated because it just seems that they're not breaking down. It's not getting in. Listen, at the appointed time, God will save. Keep praying. Keep waiting. Because for Paul, there was a time that was coming. There was a ministry. There was something that God was doing. He was setting things up in a particular way. And Paul says, at the right time, when it pleased God, it happened. Second of all, he says that it was predetermined that it would happen far back beyond the people that were praying for him, and it went all the way back to the time of his mother's womb. He says, I was separated from my mother's womb. That it happened in God's time, but it was appointed from the time that I was first conceived. Now, Paul absolutely believed in God's sovereignty and predestinating power. It's clearly evidenced by the things that he says concerning his own salvation and the doctrine that he spreads, that he was one who believed that God predestines and pre-appoints people unto salvation. But at the same time, it's very clear scripturally that Paul also believed in man's responsibility to respond to the gospel of Christ. It wasn't just that God put a check mark over certain people at the time that they were born and that they would have this, you know, thing that no matter what happened, they were going to get saved. No, that's true. God does. He separates from the womb. But that doesn't negate the responsibility that an individual has to respond to the gospel of Christ. If that was not true, then Paul would not have had a ministry. Because the whole crux of his ministry was basically to compel people to come to Christ. He uses the word persuade in that context over and over again throughout his epistles. You know, because we understand, he said, the severity of God, he said, we persuade men. Paul to the Jews in Romans chapter 10, he says, all day long he stretched out his arms to a disobedient and gainsaying people, reaching them, seeking that they might come to him and decide and choose to follow him. 
to the Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20, Paul says that we are ambassadors for Christ. We are sent by him, standing in God's place, urging you that you would be reconciled to God. So although Paul believed that person was separated from their mother's womb, he says it of himself, he also believed that a person has the responsibility to make a decision to follow Christ. That except you come to him and decide and choose and embrace the gospel of Christ, you cannot be saved. And how both of those things can be true is a mystery. But yet with God, all things are possible. He's outside of the dimensions of our finite minds. And so Paul says, at the appointed time, he who separated me from my mother's womb revealed Christ in me. He says, he called me by his grace to reveal his son in me. And then he says that I might preach him among the heathen. And the third thing Paul says about his conversion is that God had a purpose for his life, a plan and a reason for calling him. That it wasn't just at God's appointed time, and it wasn't just that, that Paul was chosen from the womb or separated from the womb, but that God did it for a reason. God had something for Paul to do. And this is Paul's testimony. He's basically sharing with them the experience of his conversion. This is what I was in times past. This was my lifestyle when I was in the Jews' religion. But in the fullness of time, God, who called me by his grace, separated me from my mother's womb, revealed his son in me that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Now, every person who is saved has a testimony very similar to Paul. Maybe you weren't a persecutor of Christians. You know, maybe you don't have the same exact story, but you do have what you were. And then how Jesus Christ met you and changed you, moved in and revealed himself to you and then revealed to you that he had a purpose and a calling on your life. There are many people that claim Christianity that have no testimony of that. You say, well, you know, what do you believe? And they say, well, I'm a Christian. And you say, well, okay, what makes you a Christian? What do you mean? How did you become a Christian? And they'll say, well, I was always a Christian. And you say, well, what do you mean by that? Well, I was raised in a Christian home. Okay, well, what if you were raised in a Muslim home? Would you be a Muslim today? And, well, and, and you know, they don't really know how to answer that. And you say, well, wait, well, what about, like, when in your life did it become yours? When, when did that transition take place? When it went from being your parents' God, your parents' religion, your parents' church, to becoming yours, that you understood that you were fallen and that you needed to know Christ personally. And they look at you like, I go to church. You know, the, I, I sing the songs, you know, you know, pass me not. Oh, and, they, you know, and they, they're like, I can speak the language, but they have no concept of what it means to actually have seen themselves as vile and corrupt before God and in need of a savior. And then coming to that point themselves when they personally embrace Jesus Christ and say, yes, God, I need a savior because I can't save myself. And then to be able to say, he revealed himself to me, and I now know him, and I believe that he has a plan for my life. And that really, in many ways, is your ticket into heaven, your testimony. You know, the, the verification in your own heart and mind that your name is written in heaven, it's how he met you. It's that you might say like Paul, I know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his suffering. I'm being made conformable into the image of his death and I'm pressing towards the mark of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. That that is the ambition and the drive of my life is that I know this God. 
And you need to ask yourself, am I really, have I really been converted? Or am I God's grandchild? Christian by association, you know, with a parent or, or in the family, or because I'm an American, you know, we are still a Christian nation for a little while at least, you know. What's the foundation of the basis of my Christianity? Paul tells them, this is what I was. This is what I now am. I was converted to Jesus Christ. And so Paul shares with them the experience of that conversion that he has. Well, then he moves from his conversion to now his decision. If you're taking notes, the first thing Paul tells them as he is you know, seeking to communicate the source of this message, he first tells them of his conversion. And now he's going to tell them of his decision. Look with me at the, again at verse 16. He says that I might preach him among the heathen or the Gentiles. He says, when this happened, immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood. Neither went I up to Jerusalem to them which were apostles before me. But I went into Arabia and returned again into Damascus And then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and abode with him for 15 days. Paul talks about the decision that he makes after coming to Jesus Christ. I am always amazed when I read the Bible and go through the Old Testament scriptures and even into the New Testament, amazed at how God interrupts people's lives. I hear you laughing, you know, because you know, there's Joseph, 17 years old. He's on his way. He's got the coat with the big sleeves, the many colors, the clipboard. You know, he's going to be the one. And, and it's clear to all the other brothers, he's on his way up. God's got a plan for his life. He's having dreams. God's revealing himself to him. He's coming alive. And the next thing you know, God interrupts this young man's plan. And he finds himself in a pit. And then as a slave sold. And then in a prison. And he spends the next 13 years or so of his life in this position being completely interrupted by God. I think of Moses. He's on his way. He's 40 years old. He's most likely the next in line to take over for Pharaoh to be the king of the most powerful nation in the world at the time. He's been trained in all the wisdom of the, and knowledge of the Egyptians. It, as Stephen tells us in Acts, that he's mighty in word and deed. And all of a sudden, He finds himself running for his life and he spends the next 40 years following sheep in the desert. And God just interrupts the man's life right there at that point. I think of young David. He's called into the palace. He's given a job there in the royal payroll. He's going to be the worship leader there to keep Saul at ease. And he's a musician hired by the king. And he can see how God is working in his life and how God is bringing him to an expected end. And then all of a sudden he looks up and he sees King Saul with this twisted look on his face and a spear in his hand. And boom, the spear is launched and it hits the wall right next to his head. And, And all of a sudden this young man with so much promise, so much hope, so much life is interrupted. And he finds himself for the next 10 years running for his life. God interrupts him. And the story goes on. Daniel and Peter and Matthew. And and, and God just has this way of interrupting people. They're, They're going somewhere. They're doing something. And then God steps in and all of that changes. I remember when I was 19 years old. And, you know, not to put myself in the list, you know, but for me personally, I experienced this interruption. 
I had a set of ideals. I kind of was starting to figure out my my way in life, how I'm going to navigate through. I had plans and goals and ambitions. And then all of a sudden, Jesus Christ comes into my life. I accept him. I say, yeah, mercy. You win. Raise the white flag. My life is yours. And, And all of a sudden... He moves into my life, and, and, you know, here I'm thinking he's going to move in, and he's going to bring, like, you know, the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He's going to bring the light of life. He's going to bring the glory of God. And, and I'm waiting to see what Jesus is going to bring into my life, and he brings a garbage can. And all of a sudden, he starts throwing out my ideals and throwing out my thoughts, throwing out my ambitions, throwing out, and I'm going, wait a minute, what's going on here? And all of a sudden, I find that my life is being interrupted. Everything that I once was in the direction I was going is now being changed and is no longer. He's interrupted my life. Something has happened. Now, I wasn't going anywhere. You know, I I was asking myself when it happened, well, now what do I do with my life? But I wasn't really going anywhere. Think of Paul. Here's Paul. Paul gets converted. He had an established career. He had deep-rooted religious convictions. He had a reputation and a place within the Judaistic uh, establishment. His job was to persecute Christians of which now he was becoming one. You know, put yourself in that place for a minute. And when he got saved, by very nature of what he was prior to coming to Christ, he lost everything. He immediately lost his job. He lost his friends. He lost his family. At one point, Paul had to have been married because he was a member of the Sanhedrin and and the Pharisee. And so he lost his wife somewhere in that, in whatever family he had. He lost his reputation. Everything that he had ever had or worked for was immediately evaporated before Paul at the moment that he met Jesus Christ personally. Now, if I were in that position, part of me would be saying, well, now what do I do? You know, what do I do with my life? Everything I was is gone. I can't carry any of it in. My career can't continue even though I just got saved. That can happen. Some people get saved. They can continue on their career. They, can, they keep their family. Not Paul. It was all gone. All of it. Everything was completely washed away immediately. And yet, even though that was his condition, look at the decision that Paul made when that happened. He tells us, first of all, that he did not confer with flesh and blood. He didn't go see a Christian counselor. He didn't say, you know what, I need to just get my my hands around this whole Christian thing a little bit and figure out where to put my feet down. He, He didn't do that. He didn't say, I need to read the latest author on how to live the Christian life, you know, or or doing things God's way or whatever the case might be. He didn't enroll in the newest or most popular seminary or Bible school thinking to himself that I really want to get this right so I'm going to just get myself grounded in the foundations. He didn't do that. He didn't confer with flesh and blood. He didn't go to any person and say, what should I do now? He also, it tells us, didn't go to Jerusalem. He he didn't go and say, well, if I want to be with God, then I got to be where God is. I'm going to seek a place. Many people do that. Well, where's God? God's at church. So if I need counsel, I need your, I'm going to go to church. I'll just go to Jerusalem, you know. I, I remember at one point in my life just wanting so desperately to hear from God that I thought, I'm going to go to Mount Sinai. Because God spoke to Moses there, and it just seems like crazy things happen. I'm going to Mount Sinai because I want to hear from God. Listen, Paul understood. He knew. He realized that it's not about a place. 
It's not about going somewhere to meet with God or to hear from God. He didn't go to Jerusalem, he said. And the third thing, he said, he didn't go to talk to the apostles. I didn't go see those that were apostles before me. He didn't go to a pastor or some religious leader and say, oh, oh, okay, Peter, I'm on your team now. You know, can you imagine you see Paul at the door? You hear a knock, do, do, do. it's Paul, the guy who's killing the Christians. And there he is saying, hey, I just want you to know I'm on your team. You guys aren't so bad after all. You sorry about Stephen, you know. He probably was thinking to himself, nah, I can't do that. That's not the right thing, you know. He doesn't do that. Now listen, there's nothing wrong with Christian counsel. The Bible encourages Christian counsel, that we should admonish one another, and in the multitude of counselors there is safety. Nothing wrong with a quiet place. Nothing wrong with pastoral advice. Nothing wrong with any of that. But with Paul and the decision that he made at the point of his conversion, what it tells us and what he's telling them is that he decided at the point of his salvation that God could be trusted with his life. That he didn't need to lean upon the opinions or the convictions of other people, but that God who saved him, the God who was interrupting him, the God who was vaporizing everything that he had been previously, would also be faithful to instruct him and to lead him. And he decided, I am not going to go talk to a person, seek a place, or get pastoral counsel. I am going to trust in and lean upon this God who just saved my soul and revealed himself to me in a powerful way. And the result of that decision led to the third thing, if you're taking notes, Paul's degree. And ultimately where this revelation came from. We know it came from Christ. We know it happened after he came to Christ. But when and how did it come? The third thing, Paul's degree. Look with me again at verse 17. He says, I didn't go to Jerusalem to them which were apostles before me. But he says, I went into Arabia and returned again unto Damascus. And then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and abode with him for 15 days. It's interesting to me to consider that there is not one person in the Bible, not one person in all of the pages of Scripture whom God used mightily that went to a seminary or to a Bible college or got a degree in theology. There's not one. However, almost all of them, if not all of them, we can say all of them, did have a degree. It wasn't a THD in biblical studies or in biblical theology, but rather it was a BSD. That is, a backside of the desert degree, BSD. That is consistent throughout Scripture when you look at the people that God used mightily. For 13 years, young Joseph was taught by God personally as a slave and then in the prison system of Egypt how to govern and lead a nation. As for those 13 years, God shaped and prepared this young man, Joseph, whose life had been so completely interrupted, trained him and shaped him into the man that would lead a nation and ultimately save the known world at the time. For 40 years, Moses, literally on the backside of the desert, would learn how to lead like a shepherd. 
He would become familiar with the Sinai Peninsula because God had a plan for his life that he would lead his people like a flock and that they would be in that wilderness for the next 40 years. And so God training Moses on the backside of the desert, teaching him how to lead, how to seek him, how to know him, how to hear his voice, how to respond, how to serve. For over a decade... David, as he ran for his life daily, not knowing if he would even have a heartbeat or a pulse the next day. David running for his life from this crazy King Saul, yet God was teaching him. God was molding him, making him into a man that would be a king that would rule after God's own heart. Not a despot or a tyrant like Saul. But on the backside of David's mountain, there God was teaching him, shaping him. And over and over it goes throughout the chronicles of God's history. And here Paul tells us that when he came to know Christ, he didn't go and try to join himself to some movement or some new establishment or some even good Christian thing. And it was a good Christian thing. But he said, no, I want to go and I want to know God. I want to know him. He's called me. He's saved me. He's the one that's got a plan for me. And he's the one I want to know personally. And so Paul went to Arabia and he spent the first three years of his Christian experience on the backside of the desert being taught by God. Learning the gospel of the grace of God. Perhaps more familiar with his sin than anybody else in the whole New Testament. You never read about Peter killing Christians. You never read about any of the apostles doing the abominable things that Paul was involved in. And yet Paul, as he encountered Christ and realized how bad he was, that he he wasn't just one who was ignorant of God, but he was actually in opposition to God. And a man who became so familiar with the grace of God, the power of the blood of Jesus Christ to cleanse away all sin, this man learned the gospel of grace as he considered and was taught on the backside of the desert. He received more grace and he understood it for all that it was. And then following Paul's three years in the desert and that brief stint he had in Damascus and the 15 days he spent with Peter, then he goes north where he spends the next seven to eight years in the city of Tarsus, just living a normal life. He worked, he occupied, He was busy. He was not involved, for all we know, in any particular ministry. He was just experiencing life as God was just shaping this man, teaching him, filling him, instilling with him everything that he would need in order to fulfill the ministry that God eventually had for him. Paul being taught and being shaped by the Lord, the degree that Jesus gave to him. No doubt during that time, being humbled, being broken, being shaped, All these things that God does is he just makes, like a potter shapes a clay vessel. You know, Paul being shaped and transformed by God, you know, moved and molded into his image. Now, there is nothing wrong with seminary or Bible school or, you know, a degree in any of these things. There's nothing wrong with any of that. But everybody that's used of God goes through the seminary of the Holy Ghost. You can go to seminary, you can get a degree, you can do, there's nothing wrong with it, but if God's going to use your life, you're going to his seminary. And you're going to get a BSD. And he's going to complete the work, Philippians 1.6, that he who began a work in you is going to be faithful to complete it. 
And let me tell you something, a BSD is way more profitable than a THD. You, it's much more effective. God deals internally with the heart. He shapes the mind and the motives from the inside, not just external. You learn things from God in the wilderness that you could never learn in a classroom or be taught from a professor or a teacher. And, and the difference between a THD that you get from a seminary and a BSD that you get from God is that a THD adds something to you. It makes you something, essentially. It gives you a degree. You come out and you say, look, I'm qualified. You get something. On the other hand, a BSD makes you nothing. It takes everything out of you. It it empties you of yourself, all of your credentials. In, In that time, no doubt, Paul's Phariseeism was thrown in the garbage. Paul's zeal was shown for what it was, that it was nothing. He had to come to the realization that God was not calling him because he was smart and zealous. Oh, God, naturally, that's why you're calling me, because you see how much zeal I have. And you're just going to adjust that zeal so that it's God-centered and not God, you know, opposing, you know. And, And no, 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 Paul had to realize, no, no, wait a minute. He doesn't want my zeal. He doesn't want my mind, my intelligence. It's all worthless. Worthless. God, why aren't you using me? Why am I here in this prison, Joseph would say. God, I thought Samuel, he came to my house. He dumped oil on my head. He, he said God has a plan. I, I was supposed to be. And here I am. I'm running for my life like a fugitive. What are you doing? I'm shaping you. I'm teaching you. You're nothing. You're less than nothing. But my grace, my power, my work will be accomplished through your life. And anyone who's going to be effectively used of God must come to that place where they realize, I am nothing. You don't get that from seminary, but you get it on the backside of the desert. And Paul is holding before them the highest credential in all of heaven and earth as he declares to the Galatian church, and he says, listen, this message, this gospel, This critical black and white message that is so incredibly glorious that no one could ever touch it or hold a candle to it. I didn't receive it from any man. I didn't learn it in any college. It wasn't handed down through generations of teachers and philosophers. I received this from Jesus Christ as he worked in my life, revealing himself to me there on the backside of that desert. And the power of God that worked through Paul's life and the effectiveness of his ministry. As he shares with them that the message came from the one who saved him and who saved them. Well, he goes on, verse 19, and he says, But other of the apostles saw I none, except for James, the Lord's brother. And now the things which I write unto you, behold, before God I lie not. Afterwards I came into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and was unknown by face unto the churches of Judea which were in Christ. But they had heard only, that he which persecuted us in times past now preacheth the faith which once he destroyed. And they glorified God in me. Paul shares with the Galatian church, first of all, where his message came from. That his message was not from man. That it wasn't of man. That it wasn't birth to impress man. And it wasn't to identify with any man but that it was from Jesus Christ directly 
that it was his plan for his life, and that it was all of him, it was through him, and it was for him. Next week, we'll pick up in chapter 2, and we will look at the other parts of Paul's message and the source of it and the division that it caused and why it matters as we look at chapter 2 of the book of Galatians. But as we close, let me just ask you three questions. And Ashley can come, you know. Why are you laughing? Because you're not going to shut up for 10 minutes. Do you have a testimony? Can you say, this is what I was? But then Jesus Christ encountered me, and this is what happened, and this is what he's doing in my life now. Is that real? Is there there that ticket, that assurance in your heart? I'm not saying you don't struggle. I'm not saying you don't have doubts. I'm not saying you don't trip over things, you know, spiritually and whatnot. But can you say, yes, I have been apprehended of Christ, and I know where I'm going, and I know him. If you don't have a testimony, I really suggest that you get one. Second of all, are you a person that that sincerely, that you trust God with your life? That you're not constantly dependent upon, you know, the coddling and the encouragement of others or the instruction or counsel that other people, nothing wrong with those things, but that you're one that you say, you know what, God can be trusted with my life. He began a good work in me. He's going to be faithful to complete this work in me. I don't need to stress and fret and be all anxious and, you know, worried about this, that thing or the other thing or how this help is going to come or how this bill is going to be paid or how this... Do you really trust him? The decision that Paul made, he can be trusted. He's going to lead my steps. He's going to perform that which he has purposed for me. He's in control. Do you believe that here tonight? And maybe tonight there's somebody here, this is number three and final, maybe there's someone here that tonight, this is the night that your life gets interrupted. You've been walking with, you know, whatever ideology or with whatever plan or with whatever ambition, you know, you've had for your life for however many years. Maybe you're established in a career. Maybe, you know, you've been going for a long time. And this night right now, As you sit and listen to my voice, the spirit of the living God is speaking to your heart and saying, I'm calling you. I'm giving you a chance to take the door, to come to me, to open as I knock upon your heart and to see what I can do as I take up your life in my hand. I wonder if there's anyone here tonight that tonight's night you get interrupted. And you consider and you look at what Joseph was and all the hope and the ambition that he had. You consider David and the climb that he was on, where he was going, the, you know, the purpose for his life. You consider Daniel, that young man in Babylon, or Matthew, the man who was a tax collector, established in his career, on his way to retirement, had it all figured out. And yet that word came from Jesus, come follow me. I wonder if Matthew today would look back and say, you know, that was a really bad move. I was almost there. I was almost there. I was vested. It was set. But I gave my life to Christ. I don't think so. Do you think David, do you think Joseph regrets it? Listen, tonight I'm telling you, if Jesus Christ is inviting you into a relationship with him, and tonight is your time, I would encourage you, give your life to him.
receive the grace of God.